Hello, welcome to Orion Talks. My name is Suat Chibukju. I'm a senior fellow at Orion Policy Institute. Today, we have a distinguished guest, Dr. Barbara Perry. Dr. Perry is a professor and the director of the Center on Hate, Bias, and Extremism at Ontario Tech University in Canada. And Dr. Perry is a distinguished scholar on right-wing extremism and hate crime. She is the chair of the International Network for Hate Studies. She wrote several books and articles on these topics. She is one of the primary authority in her field and one of the few scholars who is studying right-wing extremism for a long time. Today, we will talk about the future of right-wing extremism and discuss the policy options. Welcome, Barbara. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting um, me. Yeah, sure. So when uh, we look at the history of far-right far extremism, you know, especially after 9-11, we have given so much attention on Islamist jihadist groups. Um, but especially when we look at the last 10 years, we see these groups are, um, are more active and also like committing more violence. And when we look at the, uh, the US government and Congress that they announced that white supremacists and other right-wing groups are the most significant domestic terrorism threat in the United States. It was even before January 6th um, mm -hmm. uh, insurgency uh, at US Congress. So when we look at the last decade, and as we see these groups are getting more active, um, so in the lights of these developments, especially in the aftermath of January 6th insurrection, how do you see the future of far-right extremism in the Western world, especially in Canada and the US? And do you think far-right groups will be more a part of mainstream politics or continue to be a more marginalized groups? I, I think uh, it, it really depends on a number of factors. Uh, I think that, that COVID has certainly given uh, the far right uh, new energy, a renewed energy, mm -hmm. if you will. And I think a broader audience as well, as they play to those very um, widespread populist concerns about you know, lockdowns and, and vaccinations and vaccination passports, all those sorts of things. And coming out of the first year, year and a bit um, of, uh, of COVID and the lockdowns there, the associated loss of business, loss of loss of employment, those those sorts of factors. So all of those are being really nicely exploited uh, by the far right. Um, and, and they sort of bring people in through conspiracy theories uh, and, you know, sympathy for their plight, all of that. And then start to weave in some of these more traditional narratives, you know, the anti-Semitism, the anti-Asian narratives um, that lead and lead and bleed then into anti-immigrant narratives and anti-globalization and anti-multiculturalism. So it really is sort of a, a slippery slope, right? You, you get people in under one pretense uh, and then begin to groom them, if you will, uh, and, and feed them these other narratives as well. So I think that that is the real risk right now, uh, you know, of, of playing on those populist concerns. And I think that in the Canadian context, and our conversation is very timely given given that we're, what, a week away, a week after the election? Gosh, was it only a, a week and a bit? <laughs> it seems like it was a very long time ago. Uh, but, you know, of course, we saw there, you know, the People's Party of Canada also playing into the hands of the far right and, uh, and, and sharing those same kinds of narratives, conspiracy 
conspiracy theories, the anti-science and anti, uh, anti-lockdown uh, narratives there. So that's where you start to see, I think there's two places where you start to see that bleeding of the extreme and the mainstream. One is the, the integration of mainstream concerns into the right and yep. the success of uh, those sort of right-wing, you know, I, I wouldn't say extreme right-wing, but um, more right-wing than we've ever seen uh, in terms okay. of a very visible political party in the Canadian context. Okay, um, yeah, thanks for mentioning the elections. And also, you know, it was related to my, another question that, you know, how these far-right political parties, you know, we don't have, a far-right political party in the United States, but when you look at Canada, we have Right People's Party, and also now we recently had elections in Germany, right? Alternative for Germany Party AFD. So, um, do you see a kind of interaction between far-right extremist groups and these political parties? And also, do you think there are significant level of transition from parties to the violent extremist groups, or vice versa? I think that it's a it's a new experiment for. Canadians. Uh, this is this is really something new to us. Uh, I think to to see this um, this kind of success from a, a right wing party. I, I certainly, in my memory, we didn't even have a right wing party. Uh, never mind one as extreme as the, or sorry as popular as this. I mean, eight hundred thousand votes, six percent. Uh, six, just uh, right around 6% of the popular vote went to the People's Party of Canada. Um, so, you know, I think that that in itself is, is telling. But I think that there also are very clear connections between white nationalists, white supremacists, and, uh, and that particular party in the Canadian context. And we saw it very early on, as soon as Bernier created the party, <clears throat> excuse me, as soon as Bernier created the party, there was a flood of, you know, sort of white supremacists, um, uh, national, white nationalists who came to the party, followed him to the party and, and thought that was their party. Finally, there was a voice for them in Canadian politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of them didn't stay because he didn't, you know, he didn't go quite far enough for them. Um, but many did stay because, you know, he was he was uh, sharing their narratives. And I think we saw that again uh, in this le- election. I, but again, not necessarily explicitly around the anti-immigration, the anti-diversity, the anti-multiculturalism, where we saw that was that same um, overlap, that same intersection of uh, the the People's Party stance on public health measures and the far right stance on public health measures, the anti-statism and the Mm -hmm. anti-Trudeau sentiment. Uh, as well. <clears throat> I mean, uh, Bernier essentially, you know, crowned himself the leader of the uh, the anti-lockdown movement, what, six or eight months ago, and yeah. you know, was very visible uh, and very vocal, um, speaking at so many of the larger rallies across the country. So, uh, you know, he was very happy to, to embrace that mantle. Okay, uh, thank you so much. You know, you talk about different motivations. And also, I would like to, like, mention about how how these groups can be motivated by the, the violence from Islamist and jihadist groups all over the world, from ISIS attacks and uh, like Al Qaeda, and you know, for example, we have the the perpetrator of church, a Christchurch mosque um, shooting that actually so much kind of motivated by the ISIS attacks in in the Western world, and. Um, so I want to ask you, and I want to have your opinion about how do these far-right groups, you know, when we talk about far-right, far-right groups, it's a broad term. I know it's the white supremacists, mm-hmm. neo-Nazis, <laughs> anti-government groups. And so how do they approach the Taliban's victory and their takeoff 
take over the government, I mean, the Afghanistan, the whole country. So how do they approach to this? Yeah, um, well, we it's interesting. Of, I, do, I just yeah. sort of want to back up a minute and talk about you know where that anti-Muslim element of the movement is. And you know, we have this typology where we've identified, I don't know, eight or 10 different elements that make up the, the, the extreme right uh, in the Canadian context. And there's one pillar that is quite explicitly anti-Muslim, although Islamophobia is woven throughout many of the far right uh, groups and, and uh, individuals who come to the movement. Mm-hmm. What's been interesting is that you know, a lot of that, you know, the, the racial narratives, the Islamophobic narratives, all of those kinds of pieces have been overshadowed in some respect in the last year or so by COVID and anti-Asian and anti-Semitic mm-hmm. uh, narratives. So it's like Muslims can breathe for a while. Somebody else is, is the focus yeah. of the attention. It won't last. Uh, it will come back. And I think that, you know, that uh, this is the, the sort of resurgence of Taliban uh, is one of the factors that will give new life to that element. Uh, I think we're, we're, we're already seeing, I'm already seeing stuff online about um, Afghan refugees all of a sudden, uh, you know, the Afghan mm-hmm. refugees who are, who are leaving uh, and uh, in the far, amongst the far right chatter there about, uh, well, just as we've seen these people, just at the same time we see these people move across the borders, we're seeing these dramatic increases in crime and sexual assaults against women and, and what have you. So those narratives are coming back uh, and uh, in part with respect to refugees, but also we're seeing it uh, in terms of responses to the Taliban that this is, uh, you know, we need to shore up our defenses because this is the next round of the assault yeah. on the West. Uh, so they are, you know, they're, I think, arming themselves ideologically and, and mm-hmm. you know, perhaps even in very pragmatic terms for the next incursion uh, as they see it. Yeah, excellent. Um, you know, you have given so much thought on, you know, how these groups are mobilized and what tactics, what uh, kind of uh, narratives they use. But also you, you have given so much effort to understand what counterterrorism measures or counter-extremism measures can work. And there's a kind of like a diversion between Canada and the United States, like Canada um, designated uh, three groups, right-wing groups, including Proud Boys and two neo-Nazi groups as a domestic terrorist organization in February 2021. And we don't have this kind of policy designation for domestic terrorist groups in the United States. So there's a kind of two different ideas and the policies. So I'm just wondering who's going in the right direction, Canada or the United States? And do you think it's, it's going to be effective in Canada to be able to kind of um, mitigate this kind of extremism in the future? Mm, I, I'm, I'm ambivalent at best, uh, I think, about the impact of the, the designation. Um, I think on the one hand, when you think about what the consequences are, it really revolves around them. It doesn't make it illegal to be a member of these groups. It, you know, it makes it illegal to, mm-hmm. su- to um, financially support them and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and, and, and you can seize their resources. You can, you know, click, uh, freeze their, um, uh, their accounts. Well, they don't have a lot of funding. So there's, <laughs> that's, that's really yeah. not very effective there. Uh, and what we're mm-hmm. seeing, I think there's two, two problems. One is that uh, on the one hand, this actually feeds into their victim mentality, right? That they're the ones that are being persecuted. They're the ones that are being targeted and silenced uh, by a state 
that's overreaching its its boundaries. Um, and the other thing is that they will they'll simply morph into something else. So the brown the brown boys the proud boys dissolved but they've popped up in a different form uh and i think we saw the same thing with uh you know the first des series of de designations which included um um combat 18 and blood and honor uh that was it um uh, who did the same sort of thing right actually they stayed alive for a while they kept the group and the, yep. the names for a while but then uh sort of folded and, and re-emerged uh, you know the individuals as well as the groups re-emerged in other forms so um i think it's just you know recreating that game of whack-a-mole that we play uh with the, you know the online activities associated with the groups they pop up in a in a different domain so i'm not entirely convinced that that is you know necessarily i think it sends a very powerful symbolic message that we're doing something mm -hmm. But if that's all we're doing, that's not yeah. very much, uh, right? I think that there's much more that needs to be done in terms of uh, enforcement, um, even you know, even even just the you know hate propaganda legislation. Which I mean, the 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 language that is used online and offline, mm -hmm. the imagery yeah. that's used, the music. I mean, we you know the music is still out there uh and uh between the government and the social media companies we haven't been very effective in in um you know making that disappear so um so i think the legislative responses are um you know that's a, a very small piece of the puzzle i think that yep. um more support for community-based organizations ngos who are doing the work on the ground is mm -hmm. is really important in terms of in terms of inoculation almost right that yeah. is building resiliency within communities to and both youth and adults to to make them um uh, better able to recognize when they're being groomed, when they're being pulled in, um, you know, enhancing critical digital literacy so that people are able to unpack uh, the conspiracy theories rather than buying them wholesale. Um, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done at the grassroots rather than uh, simply uh, legislative responses. Yeah, uh, so it's a kind of whole society approach will be kind of mm. in play yeah. rather than multi-sectoral, kind of, you know, and collaborative mm -hmm. as well, right? Um, that, and you know, these organizations that. shouldn't be left out on their own uh, to fend for themselves, but do, in fact, need the support of the government and, and perhaps in terms of funding, but also then partnerships with uh, with education and partnerships with even with law enforcement, with public health even. This is also a public health uh, issue, especially now in the context of the COVID and conspiracy theories there. Okay, um, do you think US, US should go in the same direction as Canada in terms of designating domestic terrorist organizations, including Proud Boys uh, or Keepers? Well, I think we'd bring it into line with international practice. Um, mm -hmm. in, I think even at the, uh, at the level of the UN, right? Um, or, or, or the, um, not the UN, gone, gone. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that there are efforts afoot internationally to designate particular groups. And I think that that yep. makes it easier than for us to, to have a collective and, and multi, multilateral um, response to these sorts of groups and to be able to identify. So we all know it when we see it uh, and have the capacity to work uh, collaboratively across borders uh, to, uh, to confront the challenges. I mean, that's the interesting thing about some of the designations. I and mean, yep. when we think back to so many of the Islamist inspired groups that had been previously designated, 
few, if any of them, had any presence on uh, in Canada. Uh, yeah. And that's one of the differences. I mean, the, the groups that have been designated here typically do the far right groups have a presence here. They haven't engaged in the same level of violence as they have elsewhere. So I think that was why Proud Boys, for example, the base Adam Waffen mm -hmm. were designated here because of their history of violence in the US. Blood and Honor, same thing. It was because of their history of violence in, uh, in the UK in particular uh, that they were designated here. So it's, it's, it's not just about the, um, their past history here, it's about their potential. So that's what I do like is that it's forward looking. Okay. Um, you know, we don't wait for something to happen here before mm -hmm. we designate them. Okay, also, you know, you mentioned about how this policy or designation can create a grievance for these groups and a pretext for them to recruit more, especially when you look at anti-government groups uh, in yeah. the United States. Yeah, um, they don't need another reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Barbara, thank you so much for your um, great comments and, you know, sharing your opinion about this very important and timely topic. Um, please stay tuned for our future podcast. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate us. it. Thank you. Have a nice day.